Hello and welcome to another episode of the Football Faithful Podcast. My name's Sam Steen and it was yet another engrossing weekend in the Premier League and while there were thrills and spills aplenty, at one stage I did begin to wonder if, when talking generally, we'd just end up repeating pretty much everything we said last week. Now that the smoke has cleared a little though, there's lots to discuss. Joining me to make sense of it all are Colin Buig. Hi Colin. Hi Dad. Anthony Kelly's there as well. Hi Ant. What's going on? Is we okay? Good, good. Now and Deck Coleman back again. How are you Deck? How's it going? Good now. Uh, right, let's start as we always do with moment of the week. And Colm, I'll go to you first. I'm going to go for the uh, Irish connection at Sheffield United. Um, so for Sheffield United's first goal at Stamford Bridge at the weekend, they were 2 0 down. And Enda Stevens from Dublin picks up the ball on the left wing, uh, deep into Chelsea's half. Nutmeg saves by Aspel Equatia, swings the ball in, and uh, finds Callum Robinson, Irish international, puts it into the far right corner. So it's good. I mean, for a lot of us, uh, for a lot of Irish football fans, Sheffield United are a team of interest because you have those two internationals. You have McGoldrick as well up front for Sheffield United. And you have John Egan at centre-half, who's from Cork. So obviously, for me and Dick, even better again. So, uh, I just, and I just like to see Sheffield United. They, I like what they're doing. Like 3-5-2, they're going for it. Chris Wilder um, like, like plays seriously expansive football. And also, like I don't know if you heard Danny Mills just before the season started. But he was on Sky Sports News and he was asked how we thought Sheffield United was fair in the Premier League after being away for 12 years. And he gave kind of that lazy answer of, you know, oh, they'll be tough to beat. You know, they don't play much football. They play it long. It'll be tough to go to Bramall Lane. But Sheffield United played some of the best football they had, they did last season in Championship. And they're, they're going out in the Premier League and in a more restrictive way are also playing a lot of ball. And I was delighted they got a point at Stamford Bridge. And I, I really hope they stay up, not just for the Irish connection. I think they're a very good team. Uh, very good. Actually, you've kind of stolen a bunch of my questions for when we get to that match uh, or answers to questions <laughs> I haven't asked yet, but that's perfectly fine. I log uh, off. <laughs> uh, Deck, what about yourself? Um, my one is the uh, incident with Sadio Mane when he got substituted. I thought it was brilliant, um, especially after last week when I went on a big rant about Liverpool not scoring enough goals, even though they score fucking loads of goals. But it kind of just... Uh, it it just warmed the cockles of my heart when I saw him freaking out about not being set up for an extra goal. And the same, like, obviously he was pissed off that Firmino wasn't set in by Matt, uh, by Salah for the, the other chance. And it just uh, it just reminded me of what I said last week about the, the games that Liverpool are winning 3-0, that could be 5 or 6-0 and so on. And uh, it was nice to see the players actually think that as well. well another one of my questions already answered. Uh, and what about you? Uh, it was a... Tight, tight, close call for me this week. I um, I really enjoyed Chris Wilder giving giving your man Robinson some nuggies at the end of the uh, the, the Chelsea Sheffield United game. He just goes over and gets him in a headlock and starts giving him some good old fashioned nuggies. I haven't seen them for a while, you know, scraping his knuckles on his head. He, he scares me a little bit, Wilder. He looks like he'd be good in a barroom brawl, doesn't he? You know, he's <laughs> slightly terrifying looking. But now our fit moment to do. I don't know if anybody listened to it, uh, but there was a video doing the rounds on Twitter after the North London derby and a guy rang in and, and uh, is an Arsenal fan and started moaning about the media agenda against Arsenal and then Julie went on to tell Robbie Savage that he thinks Arsenal are going to comfortably win the league this season and that player for player they've got a better team than Manchester City and Arsenal combined 
and uh, Robbie Savage was just howling down the microphone at him, like just just basically. Um, it, at one point, he said that David Luiz was better than Virgil Van Dyke, and I was just sat there grinning, grinning to myself. I thought it was absolutely comedy gold. If it was a wind up, it's genius. If not, it's slightly terrifying. But yeah, it was just fantastic. Just go and listen to it. It's brilliant. Yeah, what are they thinking? Giving football fans microphones, madness. Uh, <laughs> right then, let's uh, let's start with the North London derby. And uh, lads, I have to say, I've been saying this for a while now. I absolutely love this fixture. It's, uh, it just seems to be always brilliant and full of drama. And uh, and it was again this uh, this weekend. Two two had finished with Arsenal coming back after Eriksson scored and a spot kick from Kane had Spurs in front and. I guess we'll start with the first goal uh, call. We can take it from there. And we spoke about him last week, David Louis, David Louise. I guess at fault again, you'd have to say, in a keeping error too. Yeah, I, I kind of laid the blame more for uh, Socrates for the for Spurs' first goal because Jacka, although like Granit Xhaka had the most typical game ever for him yesterday, but he it was it was Xhaka, uh, Xhaka taking control of that ball in the air, and Socrates kind of came into his area to try and clear it now. There's no problem with that, but you have to get the man and the ball in that situation, and he didn't. And that actually ended up affecting Arsenal much more than the line. But yeah, David Luiz, uh, also additionally equally typical, didn't track the run of uh, Eriksen running through. But yeah, like with Leno, Leno re-redeemed himself uh, later in the half because he made a great save from San. That would have put Spurs two up. And he made another save in the first half from an Eriksen free kick, which was relatively comfortable, but still a decent save. The the Ericsson one, I kind of understand uh, with Leno sort of why that happened because I think he anticipated a near post finish from Lamella. So he put he shifted his weight onto his left, then Lamella put it across goal. But I think like he should have predicted that Lamella would go across, you know. And he did in the end, but it was too late and he didn't get enough on it. And he just played he couldn't have made it easier for Ericsson. But it was very typical of Arsenal. And I was seeing that, you know, I as watching this match, wasn't surprised at all that Spurs went ahead. Wasn't surprised that they doubled the lead, but then ultimately was the furthest thing from surprise that the game finished to all. It is, as you say, just a mad, mad game. Yeah, I was, I was going to come back to you that in a, a little bit, but I might as well stay with you now. Is this just another example of Spurs coming apart at the seams? Yeah, and if you know me about Spurs, I have this repeated opinion of them that it's all about to fall apart. It's very fragile. But I don't know if anyone else heard uh, Mauricio Pochettino after the match. I was just watching back match of the day two there. And he admitted in his post-match interview that this period just gone since the Champions League final up until the start of this season, and even into the first few games of the season, has been the worst period of his five years at Spurs. And he hasn't delved into further detail there. But we can assume it's pretty much down to the transfer policy and his disagreements with Daniel Levy. I mean, just, just dropping that kind of hand grenade in there is a bit much, isn't it? Yeah, well, but he's, I mean, if he's only doing that now, right, can you think of the genuine level of frustration he actually does feel if he's just giving us those little, albeit significant, hand grenades that, you know, he's clearly not happy with the way it's going on behind the scenes. I think Pochettino went into this summer after a brilliant season last year because of the Champions League final, of course, and that amazing uh, two games against Ajax. I think he thought that he'll completely reshape the squad and Jermaine Genius was saying in the match today too again last night that a bit like Fergie used to do at United where he'd regenerate and create a, another great side. I don't know if Pacino was thinking of that, but he certainly wanted to get a lot out and get a lot in. And in the end, a few went out and a few came in, but it's not enough. The ones that came in 
I don't know if they're really going to make that much of a difference down the line, although they're good players like Lascelles. So we haven't even seen Ryan Sessignon yet. So that's something they, at least something new that they have to look forward to there. But I don't really know where it goes for them for the rest of the season. And I think, I, I just think Pasquino is cutting an increasingly frustrated figure. Now, he did say in that same interview uh, after the match that he's now back to being happy. But, you know, if you're starting off the post-match interview by saying, this has been the unhappiest period of my time at Spurs, and then finish the sentence by saying, oh, but I'm happy now. You're not entirely <laughs> convinced that he's happy now, you know. I think the happy now is for his employers, and the frustration is for him. And so, I look, I could be looking a bit too much into this. Spurs are obviously still a brilliant team, and um, for me, they looked a bit better on paper than Arsenal did yesterday, but I'm not surprised by how it ended. And Arsenal probably should have won the match in the end. What about Arsenal then? Uh, and because, I mean, is this just going to be the story of their season then? Just absolute clown show at the back and amazing up top. That's kind of what we've been saying. And it really seems to be coming, you know, turning out that way. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of just repeating yourself over and over again about Arsenal and the same old weaknesses, aren't you? But it is, until they sort it out, it's going to be a problem. And I never actually thought about um, what Colin was saying uh, about the Leno mistake. Um, about anticipating the near post shot but even if he was anticipating at the near post that's still piss poor goalkeeping in my opinion because really looking at Lamella's shape and bearing down on goal 99 times out of 100 you're going to go far post there so if he's even anticipating then okay fine he's thinking about it but he's clearly overthinking it and then he palms one straight into the path of Ericsson for the goal and okay he makes a save after after that for Son and tips one wide but I'm always of the opinion of a goalkeeper. Once you've made that howler, it don't matter how many great saves you make after that. You've already made the howler. You've already cost your team. I remember Simon Mignolet doing it for Liverpool in the uh, the League Cup final against Man City a few years ago. He let one in at his near post for Fernandinho and then starts making loads of saves afterwards. Well, that's not good enough and that's not that's not the right mentality. And I, I, I think that's what it boils down to with Arsenal quite a lot of the time is the, their mentality in these big matches. And... I was I was looking at the stats after the game when I when I was doing me, me summation at the weekend for the site and it was I, I think in 22 matches against the top six teams they've only won four of them and actually that's with the record slightly improving over the over the last year or so so you'd, you'd still be a little bit worried about Arsenal definitely I mean I I didn't personally think Luis was a good signing for them I think he's got big game experience he's he looks competent at times but. He, he, I don't think you can have such a live wire in the back. You, you need your centre-halves to be reliable, dependable. I, do, I don't really think, especially with the game being so quick now and, and being so difficult, I don't think there's room for a bit of a, a live wire, a loose cannon in the back four. And on paper, you think, yeah, Luis has won loads with Chelsea. He's got all the experience. But there's two games now against Liverpool and against um, Spurs, but he's been culpable. And he, he's, been, he's been part of the problem. And, you, are, you know, if you're an Arsenal fan, you're looking at Luis and thinking, yeah, he's, he's going to come in, he's going to lead the line from the back and Socrates will improve having a more assured defender, but he's coming into these games making mistakes. So, yeah, I think it will. I think we're just going to be sat here for the next 38 games, just saying same old Arsenal, really. I don't think he's got a problem going forward. I don't think he's got any issues going forward. They're a fairly good team on the eye going forward. Uh, Lacazette and uh, Bumiang are two fantastic forwards. But that, that back four needs a lot of work. It, it could be another couple of windows before they're anywhere near competitive with that back four, to be honest with you. Yeah, can I just say, do you know what I found was a really strange substitution considering what happened today? Mkhitaryan coming on, yeah. Yeah, Henrik Mkhitaryan. 
Um, and but I just, it, I just want to talk. Like, I just want to mention like Mkhitaryan in general because I would like as a Man United fan, I was so happy when we signed him from Dortmund. Yeah, I was equally as happy when we signed Shinji Kagawa. And I thought, oh, Mkhitaryan's been... I, I really was a huge fan of Mkhitaryan. And I was I was a big defender of him when he got criticism at United because he had some great moments. Like, oh, absolutely, that, yeah, yeah. That scorpion kick against Newcastle was the highlight, but he he had he really was very good in his day, very intricate. But I found it a strange one because he's com- been completely flat in his year and a half at Arsenal, totally flat. And he came on yesterday and I thought, if you're coming on in a North London derby, that's particularly, even by its standard, its standard, it's, com- it's particularly frantic and he came on he looked a bit lost now he had one lovely touch around the back a left footer that cut the defence open it was actually the, the goal that was ruled offside uh, that would have won the game for Arsenal that I think was really the only positive contribution he made but he slowed the play down a lot. you could hear the fans being very frustrated by him but it's an amazing demise that he's had you know and now that officially ends what must be the worst swap deal of <laughs> I was just going to say, Colm, you're right. It's got to be the worst swap deal of all yeah. time, hasn't it? I don't, I don't think there's ever been two two transfers which have been in parallel so bad. It's so yeah. true. Yeah, but I, I was actually going to bring him up when I when I was talking to Deck because I was going to say he he did come on and yeah he he wasn't great, but it did change the shape of how Arsenal played and they did end up scoring the equaliser after that. And they, I mean, that front three, as as uh, as Ant mentioned, they are. Excellent. They are absolutely fantastic. And that might be enough, or will that be enough, I guess is my question, to get them into the top four, perhaps. You know, they might not get the results against the big sides, but they should have enough to, you know, to, to blow a lot of the smaller sides out of the water. Yeah, I think they're, obviously, the the pace and power they have is going to cause an awful lot of teams trouble. The only thing is, as teams start realising that, no, it's a, it's a three-pronged attack with, with extra pace, will they start sitting deeper and make it more difficult for them? Um, and that's where they'll probably miss someone like Mkhitaryan. No, granted, he hasn't been spectacular or anything, but... Not not, not Mkhitaryan, but someone like him. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you're looking at Savoia, so you're looking at whether Ozil ever plays again or whatever, like, but uh, <laughs> the the front three they have are, are frightening, like, and I, I said this uh, prior to the game against Liverpool last week that, you know, there was always a worry that they were going to they were gonna tear us apart even, so against um against the lower teams they're always they're always going to win games like as the, as the lads mentioned though the backline is what's going to cause them the trouble they're just going to have to have to have 3 2 4 3 games all season and as a neutral we don't really have a problem with that like because that's kind of what that's what you enjoy watching you know the boring boring arsenal of the past is, is long gone now like so we we probably all have well, I know I do anyway I have, I have a bit of a soft spot soft spot for watching arsenal because they're always entertaining whether whether you care about how they how they play or whether they win or lose, they're always going to entertain you in games. And with the players they have now, they're like a Harlem Globetrotters team. No, that's it's just about entertaining and, and attacking. And the lads mentioned David Louise, like he he gives a platform for attack. He also gives other teams a platform to attack against them. But <laughs> that, uh, that type of that type of style seems to be what they're going for at the moment. Um, one thing one thing I do want to mention though is. The change, the change bringing Mkhitaryan on yesterday, um, while it was a bit strange, especially when Damson Sanchez was having such a horrendous game, I wonder was it just to cre- try and create a bit more of an overlap for Kalasinac down the left to create more chances there? But I don't think they used it enough um, after he came on that because 
Sanchez was having an absolute stinker. Like, so I was surprised that they didn't just keep playing balls. It was it was almost like um, watching a, a Sunday league game at times, the way both teams just wanted to go back and forward, back and forward, just keep attacking, and without realizing where the danger areas were. Um, because Arsenal didn't target him enough, and I thought if they did, they they would have won the game because Spurs just wanted to throw it away. I think. By the way, was that a dive by Harry Kane? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we invited the pressure. He invited oh. the pressure. I like, but that's what I mean. Oh, look, I'll save it for later. I'll save it for later. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, right. A, window, a window towards the end of the show there. Uh, let's go on to uh, Liverpool then. Uh, and they stay, st- stay top with a comfortable 3-0 win at Burnley. And uh, I don't know what more we say about this. Uh, Dex already mentioned Mane's reaction uh, to being subbed. So I, I suppose the, the thing... The impressive thing, really, is you know we wondered if they'd be able to maintain uh, this, the levels from last season, and it really doesn't seem to be an issue, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, it, it, at the moment, touch wood, it's it, it's absolutely phenomenal. The, the, the very, very few complaints. Um, I'd say it was arguably our most complete performance of the season so far against Burnley uh, in terms of the balance between defence and attack. And there's a lot of pundits saying that before Burnley would would cause Liverpool a lot of pain, a lot of problems. I suppose they were getting out the first three games we afforded, especially Southampton and Norwich, a lot of chances, more so than we did last season in, in many of our games. Um, but I just I thought Fabinho, Matip and, and Van Dijk were superb as a unit, as a collective. They were just absolutely brilliant. Um, I think Burnley were trying to do what they normally do. Um, Barnes was given it, you know, he, he was given a beans in terms of trying to uh, rumble them and unsettle them. I think there was one point when he was just sat on Matip on the floor and trying to get a reaction out of him, but Matip, Matip didn't sort of rise to it. It was brilliant, and he, he just looked very composed at the back, barring a couple of hairy moments. I, I thought it was relatively comfortable, and when you go to Turf Moor, you you expect a bit of a um, a bit of a kick in, a bit of a, a tough one, but we, we looked relatively comfortable at the back, which I was very impressed with. Um, you know, as I say, you sort of start repeating yourself a little bit about Liverpool, but it, it's just so good to see how refined they've become on the clock over the last 12 months. And I think the player that personifies that is Firmino at the moment. Um, I know he's got a lot of praise in the weekend, but it, it's probably, I mean, I, I shouldn't really say it because he might get bloody injured in the international break, but he's probably in the best form he's ever been in for Liverpool. Um, he, he's, he's the thread that binds that front three together, in my opinion. He's so intelligent so comfortable on the ball. He's almost languid at times, the way he, he, he plays it off. But I think the most sort of complimentary thing for Firmino is every time he's on it, um, Mane and Salah are running instinctively into the channels. He just know, um, given the opportunity, Firmino will play them in. And obviously, his ball into Mane was was absolutely superb for the first goal. And um, he was just a real live wire. Um, you, you could see Burnley just didn't know how to, didn't know what to do with him. Because uh, obviously they've got the runners running off him, but obviously he's in the middle getting all the space. And I think it, if you one way to try and shut Liverpool down is to maybe try and man mark Firmino, but then you, you're creating space, you know, for the other players to to, to wreak havoc in. So it's it, it's so good at the moment having those three players just creating constant overloads and to, to see us playing with such confidence. Uh, I, I agree with Deck about the the Mane situation as well. I was actually. Uh, I've never seen Mane react like that. Um, he, he's quite shy, quite um, softly spoken as a, as, a, as a footballer, which when you consider he's a superstar for his country as well as for Liverpool is probably quite complimentary to him. So to see him react like that in public was um, shocking. But then you think about it even good. You, you want your players to give a damn. You want your players to care as much as you care about the team. 
that's great that Klopp's got them like that, got them competitive and, and fired up. You don't want it to be too bad. You don't want them to fall out. But Well, well that's it. Is it good? I mean, is, is it like, is it good to have them that competitive or, or would you be worried about them, you know, acting that way in public? Fine if it's on the training ground or whatever, but, you know, to, to let it spill yeah, out. I don't want to see it too much in public um, if, if it can be, if it can be sort of contained. But then if it's, if it's just used as a dynamo to, to, to G each other up, I mean, Mane and Salah shared the Golden Boot Award last season. So it's clearly working. They're clearly bouncing off each other. And I think what had happened with Salah is um, he'd seen Firmino and Mane get on the, get on the act, scoring a goal. He wanted his goal. Um, I, I think that, that was all that it was. And uh, I think he, he definitely should have played Mane in, and definitely should have played Firmino in. But he, he just wanted his, his, his chance. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't want to be too much into it, if I'm being totally honest with you. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if anybody saw Milner's tweet as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's good because it it shows that the players like and Milner's tweet as well as uh, Bobby Firmino's reaction when they were coming in all making light of the situation. And I think yeah. Oxlade Chamberlain and Manny actually commented on on Milner's tweet as well, all kind of laughing it off. So it, I think I don't think it's as big a deal as people will think it no. is. No? Definitely not. Definitely, no, definitely not. And, and as I say, I, I think. I don't think Klopp would like to see it in public too much because obviously you don't you don't want the manager being undermined to an extent. But then, as I say, if it's using if it's getting the kind of results that we're seeing, then you know, fant- crack on, fantastic, stay competitive, stay fired up, stay angry, brilliant. That's what you want to see, isn't it? Uh, right, that's Liverpool then who stay top. Uh, well, let's talk about United then. And Colin, actually, I, I could probably just copy and paste I know we've said this a bunch of times but just copy and paste the chat from last week in fact talking about this week I can pretty much ask you the exact same question I asked you last week which was uh, any positives Daniel James's goal was nice Daniel James is um, really good yeah very nice guy is that what I said last week uh, something like that yeah, yeah. Um, it's great great finish um, it got uh, bizarrely got nominated for goal of the month uh, a match of the day and they left out um, Ashley Barnes's goal for Burnley last week. Oh, yeah. I, I, I thought that it was a good goal, like, but Southampton completely stood off him. Anyway, um, yeah, that was great. Good opening. Um, but, you know, pretty inevitable by the end. Like, the stats are uh, the stats are quite concerning now, I think. Beyond, you know, I know last week I was talking about the overall structure of Man United and how it's so flawed and it's, it's you know, pretty much fatally flawed at this stage. And it's not about the week to week, but. Uh, this week, I want to concentrate. Let's let's talk about now. Let's what's ha- like what's happening in these games. We've only kept one clean sheet in 19 matches now. Uh, biggest concern is Solskjaer hasn't won an away match as Man United manager since he's been the full time United manager since he got the job after the PSG game. Um, we've only won uh, three of our last 16 games in total, and of those 16 games, we've only scored more than once. Uh, sorry, we only we've only scored a goal more than once uh, in three of those games out of the sixteen in any of those games, and then we've only won by more than one goal margin uh, once since the sixth of March. So no, that was the four 0 at the start of the season. Exactly, and I was going to say that's the outlier is the Chelsea match at the start of the season, and you know in many ways that <laughs> that I've never seen such a false uh, false dawn really in recent memory because for two thirds of that match Chelsea were the better team. Uh, and, you know, it, it was the most uh, flattering 4-0 I've seen in a long time. But it, it was positive because we kept the clean sheet and we hadn't done it in so long. And it showed quite positive signs. And Pogba, despite clearly not wanting to be there, played well in spite of himself. And you thought this might be a season where, for the first time since Fergie left, we'll do well in spite of ourselves. But, I, I know, I did. I was, I was on here 
on that pod the day after that match. And I thought, you know, well, let's see, let's see. And since then, we've had Wolves away, Crystal Palace at home, Southampton away. Um, and we haven't won any of the games. And that's where we are, you know. That like I described this last season as we're kind of like a good promoted side. That's kind of what I think how we shape up. That's how we play. And I think that's what's really happening because we're at our best uh, against the bigger sides, really. We play kind of half-decent football. So that's when, when teams that kind of have no respect for this current United side take us on and attack us. And then with the pace that we now have in the team with James, uh, Rashford and Martial, that we actually can attack with pace on the counter-attack. The biggest problem we have is the rest of the time. And that obviously is far more games than it's not. The majority of the time, you're playing against lesser sides in the Premier League, on paper at least anyway. And we really struggle to break down teams that are now called have a, have a low block, as Mourinho would say, i.e. teams that play two big blocks, two big uh, banks of four, or just two big banks of defence in midfield. And basically a team that says to United come play and have a go at us. We really struggle. You'd, you'd have to say that Southampton, well, they, they had a go themselves. I thought they were really good. They were good, yeah, but we it was still there for us. We took the lead after 10 minutes and we could have gone from there, but we were meek afterwards. You know, We were weak and I know that Solskjaer is getting very frustrated with Rashford and Martial because of their, their lack of consistency in goal scoring. And one of the things he's trying to implement in training is getting the two lads to recreate kind of messy goal scenarios where they run to the near post and they anticipate a loose ball in the 60-yard box. I think Rashford's only scored a handful of goals in a 60-yard box in his career. You know, it's the total opposite to say someone like we have at Ruud van Nistelrooy. Now, Rashford is not van Nistelrooy. He's his own man and he's a very good player, as is Martial. And that's absolutely fine if you have another person up there who's going to get your goals on a consistent basis. And as maligned as he was, and I agreed with a lot of it, Lukaku often was that guy against the lesser teams. Now we don't have that foil. So we're relying completely on this counter-attacking side, basically that's that set up to be now, this counter-attacking side, to break down the vast majority of sides who are going to sit a bit deeper against us. And it all points to kind of a mid-table finish. That's the way I'm seeing it at the moment. And the other thing is like the kind of misuse that we have now of Pogba in that in the first four games of the season, we're playing him in this two, him and McTominay. We don't have a number 10. Our number 10 so far this season appears to be Jesse Lingard. Now, I know he was drafted against Southampton, but up to that, Lingard's our number 10. Lingard is a number 10 who hasn't scored or assisted a goal since January. You know, he, he's a guy who runs around a lot and he has a lot of energy. At best, he's a decent sub. And then the other number 10 we have remaining at the club is Mata, who is far from the player he used to be. And I always judge players at big clubs that if you took that player out of that big club and you put him with a smaller side or a recently promoted side or a side that's just struggling, how much difference would they make? And you run through the list of names in the current United squad and you can't see a lot of game changers in there. And that's really where we are as a club. And I think... I'll go back to my point of last week that it is a structural thing. And we just need to essentially burn it all to the ground and start again. Because the current Manchester United side is not the same club that it was a decade ago, let alone like remnants of a team. It's completely different and it needs a, a, a complete overhaul. But we have to deal with what we have now, which is the season. And we're pretty much where we are. 
exactly in the table now is exactly where we should be. Like that's that's where we are. Like that's 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 the future for us. You know, we're going to have times where we're going to play well and we're going to convert the chances, the odd chances that we create into goals. We'll probably get another really good result like we did against Chelsea in the first day of the season. But we're going to have a lot more games like Wolves away, like Southampton away, and we're going to have the odd Crystal Palace at home as well. Like these first four games are an absolutely brilliant example of where Man United are as a club now. But you know what I've seen of, of Man U with the, the, the games I've watched, I, I saw them live a few times last season at, at the stadium and um, from what I've seen of them since Solskjaer's taken over and at times even in the four games this season, um, the, the build-up play, the, the, you've got fast players like you mentioned, Wan-Bissaka and James and there's no doubt that they've got pace on the break and that they are rapid in their sort of physical abilities and attributes but the way you play, the, the build-up play is slow like mm. I was, I was watching West Ham and Leicester at the weekend, and there's a rawness to both teams. But the way they attack is quick; it's all snappy interchange of play, and you, you, you blink, and you've transitioned almost two thirds of the pitch, and they've created a four-on-three really rapidly, really snappy play, and the players all seem to be linked into what's going on. I, I, I looked at, I looked at Man U against Southampton, and as you rightly say, it was just Southampton put ten men behind the ball, and rightly so. I mean, they only had ten men at one point. Mm. Um, in the match but it was kind of like okay well you, your builder play is so slow we can contain it quite easily yeah. and I think I, I think that is a massive issue that needs to be addressed and unfortunately with Solskjaer you look at him and think has he got the pedigree as a coach to to change that I mean that, that might sound very very disrespectful towards Solskjaer but it's I think that's been an issue for Man U for some time very slow in the build up very very slow it's one pass one pass yeah. One pass, one pass. It's very slow, you know, static. That's it. I, I, we have the manager that we currently deserve. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. I mean, I don't. I, I think Solskjaer. I, I kind of do rate him a bit as, as a coach. I kind of see where he's coming from a lot of the time. It's just the fact that he happens to be manager of, uh, you know, still probably the most famous club in the world. And the problem is that casual fans or any fans really, and certainly Man United fans on social media are still kind of judging United from a decade ago, you know, and that we should be getting these results. But you have to look at what we actually have at the club. You, go, yeah. like you compare it to Liverpool. Liverpool were compared by the standards of their past a decade ago, you know, around the time of the when Rafa left and Roy Hodgson came in, and that was probably the worst Liverpool side in our, in our lifetime. But they were still, there were the poor results they were getting then, it was still because this is Liverpool Football Club, we should be so much better than this. And this is where United are now. This is Manchester United Football Club. We shouldn't be drawing with Wolves, losing at home to Palace and drawing away to Southampton. And more so, it shouldn't be uh, not that much of a shock, which is exactly what it is. That's, but that's where we are now. You look at the three substitutes that we made on Saturday lunchtime. We were one all at the time. I think, I don't know, had Southampton gone to 10, down to 10 men at that stage, but it was certainly one all and the game was in the balance. And the players that we brought on were Nemanja Matic, we brought on, as I mentioned, Jesse Lingard, and we brought on Will Greenwood, or Greenwood, sorry, Mason Greenwood. And, you know, the sub, because we had nothing else. We had absolutely nothing else. And the idea of bringing on Matic was that Pogba could move forward a bit more, but then you see, you have Matic and McTominay in midfield who were essentially the same player, the completely same player. They are a sideways, backwards duo in midfield. Matic was a fine player in his time at Chelsea, but his legs are gone, just like Mata's legs are gone. And it just goes back to the overhaul thing. But the biggest point you made there, Ant, is that 
is the biggest takeaway from the whole thing is that when you play this current Man United side, we are outrageously predictable. Mm. Like it is completely obvious what we're going to do every time. Yeah. And that's been the case really since Van Hal. Because Van Hal, what Luis Van Hal brought in was one of Van Hal's uh, the first day of the second season that Van Hal was in charge, we were at home to Spurs and we actually won the game 1 0. But the goal we scored was uh, Wayne Rooney had a, basically a tap in from six yards. But the ball came across to him and he could have easily hit it in first time. It would have been an easy tap in. But he took a touch and Kyle Walker, then of Spurs, nearly came back and nearly intercepted Rooney before it went in. And long after Van Hal left, Rooney said he used that as an example to say that Van Hal wanted us to take an extra touch on the ball every time we got it to settle ourselves. And he drilled that into the players so much so that we became this ridiculously static, predictable side. And we've actually never really got out of that cycle because we went from Van Hal to Mourinho, who is ostensibly another type of Van Hal. Yeah, he is, yeah, very similar. Yeah, yeah, very similar. A, a free-flowing, attacking brand of football, really since, do you even call, call the David Moyes here? Not really. He's also a defensive coach. So we had three defensive coaches in a, in a row, and now we have Solskjaer, who's trying his best to turn it around. But uh, we're talking about a rookie manager, and that's what we're getting. Then the results are showing. So that's where we are. Great. Uh, another joyous uh, segment there from <laughs> from Conan Buick. Uh, Daniel James is great. God, be lo- I feel sorry for him. I mean, he's come in, he's yeah. got a big move to Man United. He's scored three, well, two worldies uh, and another goal uh, in, in four starts. And he's he's nothing to show for it. It's lousy. Anyway. Might get a big move at the end of the season. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> get his big move to Leicester. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, more, more on Leicester in a little bit. Uh, shall we have a go at the quiz, lads? Yeah. Uh, right then, usual drill. I'm going to say a whole lot of teams that a player has played for, and you tell us the uh, player by the teams that he's played for. Just say your name, and I'll go to you. So, player number one began his career. Oh, God, why did I start with this one? Uh, at a club called Alajuelense. That Welsh. Uh, <laughs> could be, but no, I don't think so. Uh, went from Alajuelense to Ghent. Colum. Amir Zaki. Not Amir Zaki, no. And Christian Bentekhead. Not Bentekhead, no. Uh, then went from Ghent to Twente. Nobody. Uh, went from there to Fulham. 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 Colin John. No. <laughs> I was sure you thought you had it there. Uh, no, not not Collins John. Uh, in the middle of his time at Fulham Colum. went Colum. Brian Ruiz. It is Brian Ruiz, very good. Went to PSV on loan, uh, went to Sporting, and he's now at Santos. So there you go. Uh, right, this next player began his career at uh, Rouen in France. Colum. Colum. Sylvain Wilford. No. Went from there to Mouscron, I guess also in France. Belgium, I think, though. Uh, went from there to Hoffenheim. Uh, Colum. Colum. No. No, Colum. Colum. Demba Ba. It is Demba Ba. Very good. West Ham, Newcastle, Chelsea, Besiktas, Shanghai, Shenhua, back to Besiktas, a club called Gostepe, back to Shanghai, uh, Shenhua, and he's uh, in Istanbul now. So there you go. Uh, one more then before we go- move on, and this player began his career at Bordeaux. Colum. Colum. Sylvain Wilthard. No. <laughs> and. And. Uh, Eric Cantona. No. Deck. Deck. Sylvain Marvel. No. Went from there to Lorient. 
on loan before making a permanent move to Manchester United. Ant. Ant. Is it Quinton Fortune? No. Cullum. Cullum. Gabrielle Oberton. It is Gabrielle Oberton. Very good. Peanut Head himself went on to Newcastle. Three million pounds of beauty. Yeah, went to uh, Newcastle, Anzi, Wigan, uh, Levski, Sofia, and he's at a club called Erzurumspor now, which I think is in Turkey as well. <laughs> so there you go. Right. Uh, is that three? Cool. Yeah. yeah All right, well, you've, you've it wrapped up already. Uh, let's go on. And uh, I want to chat a bit about Leicester this time, guys, because they're up to third. They're unbeaten in four. It's another brace for Vardy. And I, when I wrote this question, I was kind of going, I, I kind of said it in jest, but the more I think about it, maybe it's a genuine question. Deck, I'm going to go to you with this one. Are they the best of the rest? And not just in the way we'd kind of been saying, like, they might finish sixth. Are they, like, third? Yeah, I was thinking that myself today. Um, I really think they are. There's, they seem to be the most, the most potent attacking-wise and probably close to the more solid defensively from the rest of the teams there. Obviously, they're third at the moment. Like, But, um, yeah, no, I think I think Rodgers seems to be doing a really good job there. Um, obviously, they have Vardy, who's always going to be a threat. Madison, I think, is brilliant. Um, he's one who actually could get a big move at the end of the season. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I really like Leicester. I think they're really good to watch. Um, they... They have a bit of what they had the year they won the league, where they they have that back to front very quickly type of game, as well as adding being a lot better in possession as well. And so those two things together, I think you can only you can only expect big things from them. Big things being probably third place being the biggest at the moment. Like uh, I was just looking under since Brendan Rodgers has come in, uh, Jamie Vardy has scored thirteen goals in sixteen league games. So like. I, and he, he denied that there was a rift with Claude Puel, but it was pretty obvious there was. There was that footage of him when he called him something, right, right, one of the last games that Puel was in charge of Leicester uh, after the match. It was quite visible on camera that Vardy was slagging him off on, on the pitch after the match. But Rodgers has been unbelievable for Vardy. That finish at the weekend against Bournemouth was absolutely brilliant, and I wasn't the least bit surprised that he pulled it off too. He, like, he's, such a, he's such an odd player, isn't he, because... He doesn't seem to be very physically strong. He's very slight. And he's quite old-fashioned because he plays so simply. Like he just he's he's lightning quick. He loves getting in behind. And yet defenses always give him that opportunity. But it clearly can't be that all these defenses are foolishly uh playing to his strengths. It's because Vardy's an incredibly intelligent player and he's constantly making the space for himself. I was looking earlier since the beginning of uh 2015-16. Vardy scored 78 Premier League goals. That's phenomenal. That is absolutely phenomenal. For, and also, for a, you forget, this guy was a late bloomer. This guy was working in a factory in his early 20s. It's an, it's an incredible story. And because he's you know, perceived to be uh, dislikable, let's say, uh, by the English media, I, a, lot of, you know, a lot of people like him, but a lot of people um, don't have the nicest things to say about him. Maybe because of that, he doesn't get as much credit as he could have. Or maybe because... He's remained with Leicester after, you know, the greatest triumph in the club's history three years ago, and they're never going to top it, that he could have gone to Arsenal that summer in 2016. He stayed with Leicester, and he's stayed there since, and it looks like he's going nowhere. Maybe that's taken the glass away from his overall career and the appreciation of him too, and the fact that he retired from international duty last year. But you're looking at one of the best Premier League strikers of the 21st century. He's absolutely brilliant, and so are Leicester. 
He's um, he, he's quite unusual, Vardy, as you say, isn't it? Because I read somewhere he he actually refuses to do weight training. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently so. Yeah, he's obviously he'll do the odd bits and pieces, but I think because he knows his game is all built around speed, um, he's apparently he's quite sort of reluctant to to bulk out and put an, an extra couple of sun. I think if you got a nutritionist and somebody working with him, he probably could have put a bit of muscle on him, but. I think he was he was quite reluctant to do so um, for a, a large chunk of his career, and obviously he's thirty two now, and he's still got that ridiculous burst of pace. I mean, yep. um, did as, as I said before about West Ham as well, and I was watching. I had to cover the Leicester game for um, at the weekend, and he was so quick. Leicester, they were just all over the pitch. They were they looked to have loads of pace and, and hunger and aggression, and um, that that front the, the sort of three uh, of Tealman's, um Vardy and um, but they have forgotten his name, um, Madison. Madison. Yeah, Madison. Uh, the, the three of them look phenomenal together. Real handful. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a couple of times where the final ball breaks down, um, and the, but that is literally being very nitpicky. Maybe it's the difference between a very very good team and just a decent team. But um, you know, you, you're looking at them, and they're only a couple of players away from being a genuine, uh, genuine solid top six team. You, I mean, I mean their, their current squad is. Is nearly just as good as their league title winning squad. It's probably better. Yeah, probably better. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Yeah, probably. And they're better. younger as well. They're a lot younger. Like mm. indeed, the Thielmans, Madison, they're all under twenty three. I think. Yeah, so, I hope they keep them. Indeed, he doesn't get much praise, but indeed, he's a very good footballer as well. I noticed him last season when we we played them at, um, at the King Power. He, he was excellent for Leicester that day. And he's um, doing a degree in university at the moment as well. Oh, well, there you go then. He makes a cup of tea as well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but seriously though, lads, like, would they be, are you looking at third for the season? I mean, everyone else seems to be in some kind of disarray. No. No. No chance. They'll finish seventh or eighth. I guarantee. I don't think because, they'll be low. Huh? I don't think they'll be that low. No, I, I think they, so. I think they could get top five. We're getting awfully excited after a 3-1 win at home to Bournemouth. They're yeah, really that's the thing. thing. But they're like, you know, it's not. It's not so much the three-one win at home to Bournemouth. It's that everyone else is sort of in disarray again. Oh, I know, I know. And they might, and they might do what they did in 2016 because that league, no one else showed up in that league. But that was nobody else showing up. And I know what your point is that the only team showing up this year are the top two. So therefore, you would say, yeah, they start into third because they've already proven that they can do that when no one else shows up. But we're still only we're what are we early September? So there's a long, long way to go. And they are going to have games where they just don't show up. And they're going to do that a couple of times in a row. So they're not there yet. They're not absolutely brilliant defensively either. But they are, they're currently the third best side in England. Definitely. Currently. If you look at the way way a lot of the games, even over the weekend, a lot of the games, and as I have to mention it as well, teams are playing at a frantic pace. That's going to suit Leicester down to the ground. Teams are just playing in transition at the moment. There's no, there's no build-up play. Teams aren't trying to keep the ball. And if Leicester, I said earlier, Leicester are decent at keeping the ball, but obviously they have frightening pace in in transition as well. So if they can do that against teams that are just going to keep going from back to front all the time, it's going to play into their hands. And I get what you're saying, Cole, about you know them having a dip and not being able to sustain it and things like that. But like looking at the rest of the teams there. You could say the same for all of the other so-called top six teams, you know. So I don't see a reason why they can't like really sustain that for for a lot longer than you'd expect. Like, 
It's um, I, I think the difference is like, like as I said, the, the, there was there was a couple of moments um where Leicester were in sort of three on two uh, against Bournemouth and Bournemouth were, were all over the place, scattergun defensively, and the, the the sort of final pass failed and it broke down and it was slightly overhit, and I've seen it with Madison a few times. I think he's a fantastic talent, and I don't I'm I'm, I'm not criticising him, but I, I just I've noticed him overhit the odd pass or two, and um I, I think if Vardy doesn't turn up, then you. You worry about them, but it's again, it's only splitting hairs and nitpicking. I don't think they'll be as low as eighth or ninth. I think if if you look at some of, the, as you say, some of the other teams defensively, they're in disarray. And um, Man United and Arsenal have got the Europa League this season to contend with. Man United squad is quite thin. Um, I, I, again, I said before about Arsenal, their their back four would mean that they're always going to drop points. So you've you've got to have some sort of crumb for comfort if you're a Leicester fan that maybe you you, you could make a sort of a late surge and nick that final slot and gets you know sixth or maybe even float around sort of fifth place. But um, they, they, they certainly they certainly go in the right direction. The Rodgers, he's, he's got them playing some really good stuff. Let's talk about uh, Chelsea then. I mean, we, we forget Arsenal, who we said would be the great entertainers. I think for for neutrals, Chelsea are going to be one of the teams to watch this season. Two uh, two against Sheffield United, as uh, Colin mentioned earlier. Um, probably a fair result, Colin. Yeah, they Chelsea are they're repeating this trend. They're they've been um, brilliant, uh, very well not brilliant but very impressive in the first half of matches. But the second half they're completely running out of steam. They lost, I think they lost three 0 in the second half to United at Old Trafford the first day of the season. They lost the second half um, in the Super Cup against Liverpool. They lost the second half at home to Leicester, and they lost the se- they lost the second half two 0 home to Sheffield United at the weekend. So they're they're running out of steam. So there there must be something happening there in their conditioning, or the fact that it's an extremely young team. This was the youngest Chelsea team to ever play in the Premier League, the starting eleven. So maybe that's something too. And they're very inexperienced. I mean, their two most exciting players um, currently are complete newcomers to the Premier League, like Tammy Abraham and Mason Mount. Um, so I suppose again, it's kind of like a bit like United is how they're playing is exactly where Chelsea currently are as a club. And they are 100% in transition. But they've been good. I mean, they. I think Deck mentioned here two weeks ago that he loves watching Chelsea. And um, I, I do too. I, I don't think you can help, do, help but because they're a bit like um, they're a bit like David O'Leary's lead side of the turn of the century. You know, they have a lot of young, exciting players and they don't really seem to know how to defend properly. But they're more, they're more good than bad. And they have a lot of yeah, young, exciting talent. But at the same time, right, their last two games have been against two promoted sides. Uh, and they just snuck a 3-2 win over Norwich. And they've drawn 2-2 at home to Sheffield United. So that's the other side of it. Now, they do have Antonio Rudiger to come back uh, in the defence, which you imagine he's the most experienced and uh, objectively the best defender that they have at the club currently. Kante so, was out as well, wasn't he? So. Kante was out, yeah. So that'll make a big difference. But you'd worry... You worry a bit about Kurt Zuma. You know, he was very high profile a couple of years ago and he went on loan to Everton last year and that was seen as a great signing by Everton. But he started the season very slowly, scored a long goal at the weekend, which was the equalising goal for Sheffield United. Then you have Cesar Raspalaqueta, who's really slowed down this season. I don't know if it's to do with, um, you know, he's been at the club a long time. Eden Hazard left, David Luiz left, uh, another manager left in his time and maybe he's just a bit fatigued from the whole thing. But, he started the season very slow, and that's just, not just because he got nutmegged by Ender Stevens, but he hasn't been particularly great uh, so far this season. So it's a funny one, but Chelsea, 
because you have Tammy Abraham who scored four goals in two games, but they're four goals that he was scoring last season. You know, it was against Norwich and Sheffield United. So you have to see how he's going to do it against the rest of the league. But they've been very entertaining so far, Chelsea, uh, in all the games they've played. We've watched them in, but you do worry about them long term. I mean, Frank Lampard is setting them up in such a way that they are re- ridiculously gung ho. And they seem to be, especially in the, the kind of the start of the second half of matches, and more savvy managers and Premier League teams are kind of picking them apart as a result. I mean, there was a point in that game on Saturday against Sheffield United that Chris Wilder and Sheffield United as a team realised this lot aren't that good. You know, they're Chelsea Football Club by name, but this is not the great side that they had in the last decade. You know, you can get at these lads. And they they ended up winning the second half 2-0 and came away with a, a well-deserved point and could have been more in the end. So the, Chelsea, you can't you can't have a goal. Look, we, all of us and every football fan and pundit has a goal at a team. The most common criticism you have of a big team is if they play within themselves. And that's why we're constantly criticising Man United because they're not exciting, they're extremely predictable and they're playing within themselves. But Chelsea are so expressive that it's to their detriment. But, you know, you think that they're only four games in Five games overall in Lampard's tenure so far. They'll learn from that. They'll get better as the season goes on. But you would worry about them defensively if you're a fan. But offensively, they'll probably end up being one of the top scorers in the league come the end of the season. There's no hope of them uh, being genuine title challengers anyway. So in many ways, it's a free hit for Lampard. It'll be very interesting to see how they get on, though. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun to watch. As Well, I think most of the teams, apart from United, will be fun to watch this season. Uh, <laughs> Deck, uh, we haven't had much of a chance to talk about Sheffield United uh, much this season. Can, can you ex- explain a bit about, uh, Colin mentioned earlier, the way they play. Can you explain how they play and what, what these overlapping centre-halves are that people talk about so much? Well, they they play with they play with a good bit of freedom, but at the same time, they seem to be well-drilled in that in that freedom, I suppose. You know, like, they, they understand... They understand when to go, when not to go, how to how to cover each other. Apart from when one centre back decides to go for the ball that the same centre back is going for, and they can see the goal. But they they understand how to attack as a team and how to defend as a team. And I think I think there's a bit a bit much being made of this overlapping centre halves because it's it's just it's just a little bit of movement and a little bit of like they try and make the pitch big when they're in possession. So they're going to step on, step on higher. Their their centre backs are going to push on. They've they've three of them, so it's easier for two centre halves to split. One is still in there. You've your two wing backs are going to push on. Your two strikers are occupying their centre halves. So they're when they're in possession, there's they're creating more options for themselves. What I thought was interesting about it though against Chelsea was, I think they changed their formation halfway through the second half because I think they they made a change and went to a four at the back at one stage, and due to the, the naivety of Chelsea, I suppose, and not managing the game. Um, so that's that's probably something that's more interesting to me anyway, that that while they have this system and they're being lauded for it, that they're willing to change and adapt within games as well. And that's going to be a big thing for them in the Premier League, especially because they're going to come up against teams that are going to tear a back three apart. But if they're willing to adapt and change slightly, then that's going to create, that's going to, it's going to give them a bit more solidity at times. Like, but, I suppose what I'm saying is the overlapping centre halves, it's not as if they're they're gonna they're not overlapping every time. They're not always bombing forward gung ho, as Cole said about Chelsea. So it's more of a it's more of a comfortable a, a comfort they're comfortable in possession and, and they're 
they're willing to go forward and they're willing to to take those risks but on the opposite side they're willing to run backwards as well and that's that's the biggest thing I think that's why it's easier for them to to play a bit of an attacking style of football when you're willing to run backwards as well it makes it makes it an awful lot easier because you're not going to get caught out half as much um, I do think it's interesting I suppose at one stage Chris Basham was was making a run and taking a shot on the edge of the box he's he's one of your centre backs and that's probably that's probably adding to it where people would say oh their their defence just run forward it's not as simple as them just running forward either you know they do they do make good support runs for each other I think that's probably what should be highlighted more than it being labelled as overlapping centre backs because I, from from my own point of view, when you're when you're coaching different sessions or different different shapes in a team and things like that, you're not so much getting carried away with whether it's the fullback overlapping, whether it's the centre back overlapping, whatever. It's it's about creating opportunities for other players to make runs. So whether it's you see a lot of the times like Man City do it, your your centre mids will make overlapping runs. Your like Man City have their fullbacks coming in and creating space for the for the centre mids, whereas what Sheffield United seem to be doing is just having their their sentiments pushing on a little bit more or, or dropping deeper at times so that the the centre halves can have that little bit more space to operate in. Um I think it's good. It's it's interesting to see. Um I haven't seen a whole pile of them, to be honest, but from what I have seen of them, they seem to be seem to be giving it a good go and, and I I'd echo what Cult said, they deserve the draw at the weekend. I think it was interesting to to point out as well, they scored in the 46th and the 89th minute. So it wasn't a case of, you know, just late on throwing, throwing the kitchen sink at Chelsea. They they came out strong at the start of the second half and they finished the second half strongly as well, which shows good character from, from a newly promoted team having come from 2-0 down at the break a couple of seasons ago. I think a Chelsea team like that would have beaten them, beaten a newly promoted team by 4 or 5 if they were 2-0 up at halftime. So you have to give them credit for that as well. What I'm really interested to see with them too, uh, is if and how Ravel Morrison fits into the whole thing. Um, I wrote a bit. Deck is well aware of my uh, interest, let's say, in Ravel Morrison. Uh, I wrote a piece about him recently for Off the Ball. I was on air talking about him that I built this guy up to be this amazing player. But so far, I think he played in the EFL Cup for them and he came on in the second half against Leicester in the Premier League and they were one all at that time. They ended up losing 2-1. So... I don't know how well it's going to go, but he's uh, one of the, the most naturally talented footballers that uh, the little bit, I, you know, admittedly, the little bit I've seen of him. But he, he, he really did catch my imagination. And I'm just, I, I really am interested to see how this goes because he has a one-year contract. He turns 27 in February. It's, it's really make or break for him uh, at Sheffield United. And I'm thinking of, he has a great manager to play with in his style because Wilder really does play expansive football, as Dick was talking about there. Um, but I really, I, I really can't wait to see how often he plays and how much Wilder does trust him because he's saying all the nicest things about Morrison, about how great he is and so naturally gifted and he's really going to add a lot to Sheffield United. But I'm really looking forward to seeing just how much he plays. And I'm always really interested now in, in Sheffield United's starting lineup because of obviously the four Irish lads as well to see, are they all playing and involved? But also for Revel Morrison. And so far, I think he's made one Premier League match day squad in the four matches. So it'll be really interesting to see how it works out. But I would advise people to keep an eye because if he does play and he starts from the start and the matches on TV, it's worth just watching him play because he, he he's well worth you and he, he 
he plays the game a bit differently to, to other players. Imagine Cully, he's a bit of a luxury player. Like So they're, they're probably going to have to find their feet in, in the Premier League. Yeah, for because yeah. you look at the goals they conceded as well at the weekend. Very, very naive goals and, and sloppy goals to give away. If you have a player like Ravel Morrison in the team, that's probably not going to do as much defending as you're going to need to do. Mm. You have to have that that more of a solid base behind you as well. And, you know, it's probably one where the team need to build confidence from picking up results. Now, this result at the weekend will will build confidence big time. But they probably need to find their feet in the league first before you see a lot of him playing, I would imagine. Yeah. He'll probably play at home to United and he'll have a great time. Oh, banker. Absolute banker. Uh, right, let's go on. It seems silly to be finishing the show with uh, the champions who won 4-0, but uh, how much can we say about City at this stage, I guess? And But uh, an interesting thing, I guess, to come out of this was the injury to Laporte. And we, we, we said last week that you know they, they were able to absorb the injury to Kevin De Bruyne last season without much fuss, really. Will they be able to do that again with Laporte out now? It's a tough one, isn't it? Um it looked a real nasty one. I don't know if the full the full um, diagnosis has come out yet as, as to what he's done, but it looks like he'll be out for a while. Um, it, it's especially the, the impact on him. It looked a really nasty one. I don't like to see it either because he's such a good defender, Laporte. He's, he really is a top-class centre. I think he's up there with Van Dijk. He's one of the best in the league. So, in answer to, in answer to the question, if you lose a defender that good, it's always going to impact on you. Um, City are so formidable going forward and they've built up this sort of mystique about themselves in the league that um, you, you you start to look around the league and look at their opposition and wonder which teams will have a go at them. But then I suppose maybe if you know there is that weakness, if, if there is that, you know, Otamendi can be hit, hit and miss sometimes when he's thrown in. You know, if, if he's put in to sort of cover in a game like against Liverpool or a sort of free-flowing attacking team like Chelsea or Arsenal, will he get caught out? You know, it'll definitely be a be be something to exploit for teams. Um, I, I suppose we've we've all just become so used to seeing City just brush teams aside and being so good defensively. You you don't really question any sort of vulnerability at the back. Um, but yeah, um, it's I suppose there's, there's a there's a sh- sort of sh- um, shaft of light coming through for for Liverpool as a, as a chasing team, I suppose. But um, yeah. It's it's so hard to see um, any sort of weakness in City. You know, they they just absolutely pummeled Brighton four nil. You could say Brighton were very naive as well in that match. You know, they they were they were very open, very expansive, and just sort of gave Man City the luxury of time and space all over the pitch. And that's only going to end up one way. Um, but they're, they're so good going forward that you could just see them being able to to deal with and, and sort of manage on a game by game basis that that sort of injury to Laporte. Uh, whether they'll delve into the transfer markets in January, you don't know. That that's also an option for them as well. So um, maybe I'm just being pessimistic, but the, uh, the they don't look like they'll they'll lose too much of it from it. To be honest with you, I think uh, I do think that Emmerich Laporte's uh, injury could could be significant to City because they've also they lost Vincent Company too, so they're two centre halves down, um, and John Stone's only coming back to fitness. So really, they can only rely at the moment on Nicholas Odomendi, and he is by far the dodgiest out of all those four. So yeah, is, yeah. that's the only thing. And if I was a Liverpool fan, that would be the one thing I'd be looking at that we don't know how yet how long Laporte is going to be out for, but it doesn't look good by all accounts. So No, it looks like a bad one, doesn't it? it? You know, you never know. I mean, it's, it's unlikely because they're just swatting teams aside, but you never know that they could drop. They just have another draw. That's all Liverpool need if just City have one or two. Yeah, yeah. Draws. That's all you need. Like, um, Absolutely. Yeah. So they have... My, my only... Go on. 
my only concern about City, as I say, is they've, they've built up that sort of... I think I, I said it towards the end of last season and I said it going into this season. Teams are almost beaten before they've even gone onto the pitch against yeah. them. That's that's the only concern, you know. I as I just look at them and think I don't even see teams having a go. Was, was it Burnley at, at Turf Moor last season? They had no shots against them. Yeah. In, in, in the match, they didn't even have a shot. He, he, I think it was um, off target. Even I don't think he had a chance. So whether teams can actually have a go at them and and have the bravery to try and try and take them on, you know, as, as I say, Brighton tried to be a bit expansive against them. They actually played all right for forty-five minutes, but. A team like City are just gonna just gonna relish that kind of space. I think it's a good point to make about company, though. You know, I think obviously with, with him gone and Laporte injured, Stones not to mend, it looks a bit light. Whether Fernandinho can slot in and and maybe cover dropping a bit deeper, but then he, he's old and slow, so it's one of them. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, I don't want to get me up, Colin. You get me up from now, mate. Stop it. <laughs> no, 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 I imagine I was going to just dampen your hopes because I was going to say right why that would be a good thing that Laporte is out. <laughs> <laughs> the bad thing is that Kevin De Bruyne has picked up from where he left off the season before last. Because yeah. basically, De Bruyne wasn't available last season, and he's already he's already contributed with five assists this season in the Premier League. Five assists in four games, and three yeah. of those have been for Aguero and two for Sterling. So you're talking that is that's formidable. And Aguero is on target to have his best season ever. His highest, I think, the most goals he's ever scored in one season in the Premier League is 26. So at the moment, he's going to fly through that. And I think the most assists in a Premier League season is 20 by Thierry Henry. So you think that both those guys have those records in sight. So that so while it's good for the opposition, and by opposition I mean just Liverpool, that Laporte is <laughs> they also have they also have a, a fit and firing De Bruyne back, who on his day is the best midfielder in Europe. So you know, another city win. Here we go. More, more joy and uh, an excitement from Cullen Buig there. Uh, we'll, uh, I've heard that so often. In my life. Let's uh, let's have another round of the quiz. Where uh, oh, oh smile, you know, cheer up, Cullen. You're you're winning. You're winning three nil, uh, and I've only got three left. So the best that can happen is a draw. Uh, this next player, who uh, this next player, began his career at a club called Cobrasal. <laughs> and then he went to yeah, sounds like it. And then he went to uh, Cobriendino. Oh, yeah. And then he went to San Galen, or Gallen, and then he went to Sevilla. Now we start getting into the real meat of it. Colum. Colum. Freddy Canute. No. Went from Sevilla to Real Madrid. Colum. 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 Jose Antonio Reyes. No. Ant. Ant. It's not um, Ramos, is it? It's not Ramos, no. Went from Madrid to Inter. Colum. Colum. Esteban Cambiaso. No. Oh, uh, Cullum. Cullum. Santi Solari. No. Those are his big clubs. Then he went to Club America and he finished up at Colo Colo. Sorry. Real Sevilla. I can tell you. So his big clubs, yeah. Sevilla, uh, Real and Inter scored 21 times for Sevilla in 59 games, 77 goals for Real in 137 and uh, 26 goals for Inter in 101 games. He's Ant. Ant. It's not Diego Melito, is it? No. Dick. Dick. Ivan uh, Zamorano. It is Ivan Zamorano. Very good. Stealing in there with the points. Very nice. Uh, right then, this next player... Uh, here's a good one. This next player began his career at Celta B. Is that Celta Vigo? And then he went on to the A-team. Ant. Ant. 
Iago Aspas. It is Iago Aspas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Iago Backpass. That's right. Liverpool, Sevilla. And now he's back at Celta Vigo. Uh, doing really well, actually. He scored 75 goals in 128 games. Fair play. Uh, right then, uh, this is my final one. Uh, and so you've you've wrapped it up, Cole. This is just for uh, for shits and giggles. Uh, began his career at Watford. This guy's had some career, to be fair. Went from Watford to Feyenoord. Mm. Went from Feyenoord, uh, or in the middle of that, did a loan spell at Wolves and a loan spell at a club called Excelsior before doing a, a permanent move to Wimbledon. Cullum. Cullum. F and a cuckoo. No. Went from Wimbledon to West Ham. Cullum. Oh, it's close. I can't. I'll give it to you. All court. No. Ah, bollocks. Went no, I, can't, I can't remember my one. Went from West Ham to Leicester. Ant. Ant. Bloody um, AD I can buy, is it? No. He went from Leicester then to Wigan. Ant. Ant. Aaron Bent. No. Went from Wigan to Sunderland. Went from Sunderland to Southampton. What some career? <laughs> Sounds like a status quo UK gig. This I tell you what, his uh, his estate agent must have been fucking loving him. Uh, went from Southampton to Portsmouth. Oh God! Biggest <laughs> list of nothing clubs. Like this is so hard. <laughs> uh, in the middle of that uh, time at Portsmouth, he went to Oxford United on loan before finishing his career at AFC Wimbledon, for whom he played eight times and scored once. It's Carl Court, Sam. Come on. <laughs> it's not Carl Court. Yeah, I just need, I need to look him up again and get some more info on the guy. I need more clues. Like it's just, oh, his clubs are so unentertaining. Like, <laughs> I think of anything. It's so vague, isn't it? It's such a yeah. vague list of clubs. Like uh, he he was a striker. Yeah, I thought so. It's Carl Court. It's not <laughs> Carl Court. Um, well, I mean, maybe if I give you his uh, his international team, it might help. Played for the Republic of Ireland. Cullum. Yes. Cullum. <laughs> Jesus David Connolly. It is David Connolly. <laughs> Very good. Well done. Uh, four points from Cullum this week. Well done. You're the champ. Uh, let's go for prick of the week. And Cullum will stick with you. I think it's Harry Kane, right? I, I set it up nicely earlier. So it's not actually Harry Kane, right? It was 2-2 in the North London Derby. And he's captain of Spurs. And Spurs is main man. So he did everything he could to win the game. Although I hate diving. So he tried it out, right? He leaned his body uh, into Kalasinic and, you know, went down in the heap. So whatever about that. But it's the British media's uh, complete, completely ignoring the fact that, or even entertaining the idea that England's captain dived. So Sky Sports were like, you know, they kind of sheepishly said, oh, he's he stumbled there. And Jonathan <laughs> Pierce did the same thing on BBC. And I, like Sky Sports News's match report at just at the top of the hour last night after the match was almost a parody where they you know the I can't remember who did the report but it was the usual high energy, very passionate Sky reporting of the match and it was very easy to be like that about this game because it was brilliant for all four goals and all the incidents and each incident was treated with equal prestige of all that happened. Amazing, amazing goals, amazing errors. What would Jack are doing with the tackle? Oh, and uh, Harry Kane fell there at the end. Yeah, but it ended 2-2 at the Emirates. And it's just the inability or unwillingness of the British media or a lot of ex-players who recently retired to criticise 
a player in Harry Kane's position. And it's very frustrating to watch, and it really, it really annoys me. So Harry Kane himself is low down on my list of this particular gripe that I have. The prick of the week becomes is, is the British media's unwillingness to heavily criticise one of their own when it merits criticism. And it's very frustrating to watch. And that's a life thing. It's not just the British media. It would happen the same if it was an Irish player. It's very frustrating to watch. <laughs> the so, thing is, Colin, the tied up with Brexit, mate. That's the thing. They're all concerned about that. So, you know, there you yeah, get yeah. Uh, and while you're there <laughs> um, it's got to be for me um, I don't know if anybody saw it it was an absolute snooze fest of a game uh, but it, it, it came to life at the end of the, at Crystal Palace um, against Aston Villa just Kevin Friend's decision to rule out uh, yeah. Henry Lansby's uh, the late equaliser it's, it's one of the worst goals I've seen it was just bizarre on so many levels like he he calls Jack Grealish for diving in the build up when there's blatant contact on Grealish and I think as he's going down, Gary Cahill's actually got hold of his leg as Grealish is going down. So I don't know what Grealish is supposed to do. I don't think he could physically have stayed on his feet. And then if four breaks to Lansbury, he's in the box. It's a lovely finish, actually, to, to, to get a point um, for Villa. And it, it, the whistle's already gone as, as, as he's at the ball. And then, it, I, I don't know, if you look at the replay, I don't even know how he's got his whistle to his mouth so quick. It just seemed like such a hasty decision. Um, and, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that we hoped we would see stamp out and obviously VAR's done nothing but cause controversy and apparently VAR couldn't have even done anything for that one um, but unfortunately we're still seeing these kind of howlers and although there wasn't much, it wasn't much of a game it was just horrendous and I just think Kevin Friend if you sat him down now we'd have trouble explaining the decision to you it was just a really bizarre one so uh, what a prick a bit weird that Fair enough uh, Dick yeah, exactly the same for me. I had like the same more or less word for word rant lined up there about Kevin Friend. Um, yeah, the only thing I'd add is um, if you look at it, he actually, Jack Grealish actually intentionally flicks the ball into Lans- Lansbury's path, and he never once looks as if I know. I know you're going to say, "Ah, for sure, he's following the ball." But if a player is diving, they generally don't know where the ball has gone. They don't know what their teammates are doing. They're looking at the referee. You'll even see from um, one of Liverpool's goals a couple of weeks ago, Van Dijk was getting fouled. It was against Arsenal. And he didn't see the ball going into the net because he was calling for a free or for a penalty. Um, similar in this situation, except Jack Grealish doesn't even look for a penalty. He's made an attempt to play the ball himself to Lansbury. Lansbury finishes it. He gets up. He goes about celebrating the goal and then turns around and is wondering why is what, what what's after happening here. So... I think it's an absolute disgrace. Yeah, what what a prick. And a, a special mention as well for, uh, I've written this down, Wanderson uh, Cristaldo Farias. Have you seen this? This is the Brazilian player who plays for Bulgarian side Ludogorets. Uh, scored uh, a goal, he thought, against Slavia Sofia. Runs into the crowd to kiss his wife. Uh, and then, well, doesn't notice that actually the goal was disallowed and they've kicked off and gone down the other end. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's up in the stand calling his wife down and the game's just going on behind him. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What a prick. Uh, that's it, I think. Uh, we'll be back again next week and uh, keep up to date with lots of more great football content on uh, thefootballfaithful.com. And do subscribe in all the places that you can subscribe to podcasts because we're on all of them. And it'll just pop up in your feed whenever we release a podcast. Just time to say, Thanks to Colin. Thanks, lads. Cheers, Deck. Cheers. Thanks, Ant. Thanks, for lads. Enjoyed that. And goodbye from me. We'll see you next time.